Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. And now, here is a double shot from our featured artist today, Ed Sweeney. And stay tuned for that interview. It comes up right after these songs.
That was Ed Sweeney from his brand new release, and we got Ed on the line right now. Hey, Ed, how you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Now, this is your first time on our show, and we always love to start off by giving our fans an opportunity to get to know not only you as an artist, but you as a person. And the best way to do that is to look at your journey, how you got to where you are today, both musically and personally. So give us the story of Ed Sweeney. <laughs> 25 words or less. <laughs> um, so I started playing guitar when I was in high school. So I went to an all-boys Catholic high school up in Shrewsbury, Mass. And there was this blind blues singer by the name of Paul Pina who was giving guitar lessons. He was going to Clark University. So that's the first time I started playing guitar and learning guitar was taking lessons from Paul. And uh, the hit song Jet Airliner, Paul wrote. And, uh, you know, he got signed to Capitol Records. And so he moved out of the area. Um, and I was on my own. I was playing it. You know, front act at coffee houses doing radio songs. When a guy by the name of Andy Cohen was there, and he was doing these old blues, Reverend Gary Davis, uh, folk songs and everything. And he sat down after I opened for him. So he sat down after the show and just started showing me all these different finger style things on guitar and just opened up my head to these, you know. Um, Blind Willie McTell, Reverend Gary Davis, Mississippi John Hurt, all these old blues players. And then he was gone. So I wound up, um, I went to college like I was supposed to, and I went to Providence College and uh, as a chemistry major. And they, I discovered that I was never going to make a meaningful contribution to the world of chemistry. And then the chemistry department discovered the same thing. <laughs> but what happened is that uh, there was a couple of faculty members um, who wanted to start a music department. And we pulled our resources together, and I became Providence College's first music major in their history ever, studying steel string guitar. Okay. And so... I had to go find teachers, which was sort of interesting because I wasn't a classical guitarist. I was a steel string guitarist. And I wound up finding my way to a man by the name of Tony Salatan up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Tony, um, people know his work. He is the person who discovered the song, Michael Row Your Boat Ashore in Kumbaya. And he was the first uh, music education series nationwide on public television way back in the late 50s. So through Tony, um, I was introduced to even more players, steel string players, and then old-timey banjo. And, uh, you know, the, the great advantage of being sort of the first at anything is you sort of get to make up the rules. You don't have a lot to follow. And that can be one of the weaknesses. But through Tony, I met people who collected folk songs. I met different people who were performing that whole genre, who were, uh, as Pete Seeger would say, really well known by a few people. Um, and that's sort of where I started. And then I was performing and uh, did some earlier recording when I met... Uh, my wife-to-be, uh, believe it or not. She was a banjo student of mine. Uh, she was an editor at the Providence Journal. And on our second date, we talked about when we would get married, uh, not if. And um, that was 40 years ago. We had two boys. And so I took a step back for a lot of years because I stayed home to raise boys. Okay. Um, then, as I took that step back, I my instrumental Christmas recordings had done real well. 
um, in terms of reviews and everything. So um, after my youngest entered first grade, I was hired by a record company that used to be out of Roswell, New, uh, Georgia, uh, Intersound Entertainment, to start a gift division for them. And for a couple of years, I commuted from Rhode Island to Roswell, Georgia, uh, and created a division for them. And that was hard. That was a lot of traveling. And um, then stepped back a little bit again, away from at least the music industry end of it. Um, for 14 years, I was the finance director and operations director for Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Project. And I was hired because I had a music experience because I had worked for a record company. Uh, so anything that dealing with artists might throw at me wouldn't throw me for a loop. Um, and because I worked for a record company, I had to understand publishing and royalties and um, the whole business aspect of music. And while I was working for Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Project, one of the his musicians, a man by the name of Yang Wei, who is a pipa master, pipa being a Chinese instrument, found out I was also a musician. And so he had me bring in his instruments. We started playing together. And all of a sudden, I started doing concerts again through Chicago and everything, where we took Eastern music, Chinese music on pipa, and Appalachian music on old-timey banjo. And we were performing and wound up performing in Taiwan and doing a recording. And then as I left Silk Road, I've come back. Um, I left Silk Road in 2019 just to have, just in time for the pandemic. Um, mm. <laughs> so <clears throat> I've been getting back performing, recorded uh, one recording before this with a friend. And then uh, this one with your Sunday drive that... Um, we'll be talking about okay so i think that gives me i think that gives me in a few sentences or less sort of the uh jungle gym i've done to get to where i am now now let's talk a little bit uh, about this new release um what was your goal for this what, what was the, was kind of the the ins- the reason for its being um on the front cover is an old shot of a um, car at an old gas station, old car, old gas station. Um, and it's a scene, and it's been abandoned. Everything's been abandoned. It's, um, you know, the uh, if you get to see the gas pumps, they tell you the cost of leaded gas that they're pumping out. The um, license plates up. And it's really like a lot of gas stations you would have seen if you were driving around the country in the 50s and 60s. Um, And they're just little bits of history. And this picture that my friend took started thinking about the songs I know that are are just these little markers. You know what I mean? They're, They're just these little snippets of history. And they're all there. And they're around us. And they're part of our community that for some people we've left behind and I think that's that's not great at times it's sometimes good to remember what's gone on before us okay now alright go ahead so so that's sort of what became an artistic inspiration for what was I going to do on this recording and being a Sunday drive um it sort of left me open. It didn't have to be one style or one particular theme because I do remember driving on Sunday, Sundays on the, uh, just go exploring and you listen to the radio and you'd hear a variety of music. Um, if you went to the farmer's market, you heard music there, uh, go into different towns. There was different music. So it was just trying to have sort of a variety. Okay. Now, when you're looking for that song, the song to kind of fill that that subject of the Sunday Drive, 
what were some of the criteria that you were kind of looking at? What what kind of drew you to some songs as opposed to others? Um, ooh, that's pro- that's a tough question because I have eclectic tastes. So, um, one of the songs I recorded, "Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie," is just this song of someone's dying and he he just that person doesn't want to be left behind or forgotten so I wanted to capture that um, so that felt strong to me um, another song that was written by a friend of mine called Distant Shore um it's really a song of someone who is realizing they have to leave their home. They have to go on a journey, but they're sort of saying all the things that they remember about the old country. And my mom emigrated to this country from Ireland as a young woman by herself shortly after World War II. Um, or maybe not shortly after, but, you know, in the in the late 40s. And it was only later in life that we discovered that as a student nurse, she had lived through the bombing of London. Um, so this whole thing of you're leaving home, and this is what you're leaving behind, and this person saying, but I'm going to follow you there. So that sort of thing. You know, these sort of things that as you drive and as you leave one area and go to another, it it becomes this sort of, um, what are you feeling and why are you doing this? You know, from uh, Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie, which is someone's death wish to distant shores, that, you know, this is where I'm going, to, um, you know... It wound up being a slightly darker album than I normally am. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's sort of where that inspiration came in, and I started getting drawn to those songs. Okay. To start put, putting this together. Well, you know, finding great songs and then interpreting them is, is half the battle. The other half is going into the studio... And creating its sonic identity, its vibe, its its groove, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and every artist has their way of working in that environment to capture the sound they're looking for. Um, yep. w- what is your process when you get into the studio that helps you get the sound you want as an artist? Um. <laughs> <clears throat> it's twofold. So, one, you know, I'll get in there and I will have worked out my idea and then I lay it down and then I have to sit back and listen to it. So, in more than one song on this recording, I would have spent four or five hours in the studio laying it down. And then I listened to it and I said, oh, that's all wrong. And have to start, you know, just start all over. That happened a couple of times. Um, and usually, if I'm not performing with the person live in the studio, I try to make space. We will have rehearsed together, but because of schedules, we could not be together in the studio. Or uh, engineers don't always like people live together in the studio either. It gets them, so we would have figured out what space I will give so that they can be creative. Because... Um, Usually, when I'm recording with someone, I want them to put their two cents in. I want them to be creative, and I tend to work in small ensembles. So I will sit there and say, this is how I'm going to be. This is going to be your space, and I want you to have fun with your space. I want you to go for it. Okay. And then I'll, and then I'll play in the back, which I also like doing. You know, there are many times I like being that background musician and letting someone else step forward. And they get to make it their own. And with that, we get to make something different. So before I even stepped in, there's a lot of, 
back and forth with people who I'm working with. Well, tell me a little bit about the lineup on this. Who are you working with on this uh, CD? Well, believe it or not, only one person, Kathy Clasper Torch, who is a local musician who plays erhu, which is a Chinese instrument, fiddle, and cello. And um, Kathy and I have done concerts with another friend for the past couple of years. Um, I, I'm real comfortable working with her, and, and I think vice versa. And so... Um, and we have similar musical tastes. Like, we really like emphasizing the song necessarily, not necessarily us or the individual. So, um, and she also has very eclectic tastes. So there were quite a few times where I would lay down what I was going to do, and then we would get back together, and I would, I think the best word is, coach what she wants what she was putting down I, there were a couple of times I would sit there and say you know you have the lead at this point <laughs> don't be listen. don't be playing behind me go for it and she had the you know that sense of what to do and also what not to do so this, this recording is actually I've worked with probably least, the least number of people I've done in, than I had ever done in any other recording Okay. Now, um, of course, once you get it recorded, you have to get it out to, you know, press and radio. And uh, yep. you're working with Adam Dawson from uh, Broken Jukebox Media. Tell me a little bit about that relationship. Oh, well, um, I knew I needed help doing that because that's been one of the big changes. I've seen in the music industry that you really need people like Adam and others to help you really just be in contact with people to get your music out there. And so as I was inquiring through people, um, Adam and I had a conversation, more than one, and I found him honest, very straightforward. Um and that is probably, you know, being straightforward and, and that feeling of honesty, it, it's such a joy to find because the music industry and the entertainment industry can be so much hype. And I'd rather have someone tell me, um, I don't need to be told I'm wonderful. I need someone just to tell me what they are really thinking, and Adam does that. Right. Now, you know, and that's, I treasure that. Okay. Now, we all know that uh, the music industry has dramatically changed over the last 20 years, and the consumer has embraced streaming as a way to consume music. And for the consumer, I mean, it's a no-brainer. I mean... For 10, 10, 15 bucks a month, you have access to pretty much everything that's been recorded in the, in the last 100 years. Uh, there are 20,000 new um, releases uh, hitting uh, Spotify a week. You know, so the amount of content is, is overwhelming uh, that's available to the consumer that's out there. And, they, you know, for them, I mean, you can consume all you want and not cost you any more. Uh, but what has happened is, is that recorded music as an as a, uh, entity in itself has lost its status as a product. It's no longer something to purchase. It's now a service. They expect you to be there. And it's this double-edged sword that in that you have access to a worldwide market, but you're not getting the revenue from it anymore. It's, it's not coming your way. Um, it's not being distributed equitably, let's put it that way. How has this shift in perception by the consumer affected you as an artist? Well, you know, if you go back to the 50s, 
in 60s, the first band who could make a living by not performing were the Beatles. You know, they, they really were the first major change of this, I can now produce recordings and I'm not going to perform anymore. And there's, there were a lot of reasons for why it was difficult for the Beatles to, to be stopped performing. Record companies, you know, um, sat there and always demanded, or used to demand, that artists tour so they could push product. And, and you're right, they can't do that anymore. You can't really push product like you used to in, in those days. And so that changes the whole touring model, and that changes the finance. But I also would like to point out and then we'll talk about streaming is that MTV had a huge impact because you know with MTV artists had to put on a, almost like a Broadway show you know with screen screens and bigger venues and dancers people wanted to see live on stage what they could see in these videos so there were all these changes. I'm someone who actually likes streaming because in my career in the 70s and 80s, for me to have a 10,000 mailing list, you know, I would drive on average 60 to 90,000 miles a year forming uh, by myself. Um, I now have fans in Taiwan who get to hear everything I do. So it's, you know, I, so in the, being access to a, a larger audience that's able to see the streaming has been great because I'm, I'm not subject to a record company. I'm not subject to someone else saying, um, we control the airwaves and unless you do this, you're, no one's going to hear your music. In terms of financially, I still think the bread and butter is going to be for people to get in front and perform for other people. You oh, know, that's... Yeah, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, I am of a certain age where I remember <clears throat> when artists used to tour to support a CD re- or an album release, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um then it became um, that the the product, the recorded product, was used to promote the tour, as opposed mm-hmm. to promoting the tour, promoting the album release. Uh, and then it got to the point where they just totally got disconnected. And you know, people now, you know, the release of music is different. People listen differently now. Um, it's like. People are creating more of a soundtrack to their life. Like your concept of the Sunday drive, people are creating yep. their own soundtrack for their Sunday drives, their their you know ride home from work, their uh, their workout you know that they do in their their little home gym or whatever the case may be. So it's a different type of listening. You know what I mean? They're creating an emotional mood as opposed to taking a single artist, laying that that album down on on the platter and putting the needle on it and listening to it from end to end. I mean, mean, like Dark Side of the Moon just loses something on shuffle. You know what I mean? Yes, it does. It it does. And and I'm with you 100% here because as a as an artist, you used to really worry about what was your opening cut, what was your middle cut, what was your end cut. Um, yeah, was where was the journey to? going, you know? Yeah, and and now I realize that, um, of course, sequencing and all these things are important, but it's the, it's the minor, minority of people who will actually listen to an artist straight through. Um, as an artist, I have my listening is 
I love listening to projects. I love listening to an album straight through, even even today. But most people I know, the vast majority, well, there's an Ed Sweeney cut, then there's a Taylor Swift cut, then there might be an old rock and roll cut, and they're all in this, you know, one right after the other. Mm-hmm. And you're like, huh, it's... Um, and you have these algorithms that, you know, piece things together, and sometimes they work, and sometimes they don't. But how people experience music is different. And how we play it in our homes, in our cars, um, because, the, you know, it's fewer and fewer who will play something um, straight through. Right. So I'm... I'm with you on that and that changes the dynamics in terms of the money um, the vast majority of artists never made a lot of money from their recordings they made it from performing I agree Um, you know I always tell artists especially the young ones that are you know how do you make a living in the music industry and and I there's two pieces of advice that I always give them. Number one, if you're not spending more time in the van than you are on stage, you're doing something wrong. Um, the second piece of advice is, in order to have a sustainable career in the music industry, all you really need is 1,000 fans that are willing to spend $100 a year on your art. And in a worldwide market, that's a doable thing. Yes. You can find your fans easier today than I think you could 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Oh, you know, yeah. That's the beauty of streaming. That, you know, that's the beauty of the Internet. Um, getting noticed over, as you, as you pointed out, the vast amount of music that's out there at any given time. That's that's the hard part, but that's always been the hard part. Whether, you know, getting the venue to hire you. Um, also, sort of, you know, wanting to perform in front of people. I know, um, I know artists who, who are uncomfortable with that, and, and they wonder... Why they're not making a living? Well, it's always been that you are performing in front of people. And you can't escape that. No, you definitely can't escape. That's that's the job of, of musician yeah. is to create music, not only in a studio, but also before um, that that fan base that uh, group of people and and give them that experience of music in the moment which is a different experience than recorded music um now you would you know you would mention about this this the power of uh social media uh and that really became evident when the pandemic hit uh because a lot of artists started to go up onto social media they started to do live streams. Uh, when the days turned into weeks, um, they started saying, "Well, let, let's get a better camera. Let's, you know, let's get some better microphones." They started to get better at live streaming, and then they started to realize when the weeks turned into months, turned into years, that you need to be more creative in your content, and. Some of these artists started to realize that the fans were really thirsting for that raw, authentic, authentic kind of content that they're used to from reality shows. They wanted to see artists and what they do outside of music. You know, they're they're puppies, kittens, babies, barnyard animals. Uh, uh, I know, like Mindy Abar does a, a little cooking thing with her husband and, and a bottle of wine. Um, you know, and it, it brings in a wider swath of people into your social media funnel and, um, and allows them to distill down through 
your social media and say, oh, he plays music. Oh, that's his new CD. Oh, let me listen on Spotify. And you distill them down into fans that are willing to invest in you as an artist. Um, What are some of the things that you are doing that are uh, kind of helping you establish your brand on social media as well as get the word out on this release? Well, um, one is is contacting people like Adam, who helped me do that, um, because he had he's much more in touch with that in some ways than I am. Um, for me, here comes an I I felt I did not go on social media a lot during the pandemic for a couple of reasons because I also felt that I had a belief that venues would reopen and I was on the board of the Blackstone River Theater which is a venue, local venue here and there was a huge attendance drop uh, across the country as venues opened because People were so used to seeing those artists on their computer for free that why should they fork $15, dollars $20, to go see them at the local venue? You know, and so there's been this, since the pandemic has calmed down and venues have tried to survive, there's been this big shift and I'm not talking just folk and small clubs I'm talking major venues of trying to get their audiences back for live music and trying to and you know what artists are succeeding more now in the in that in, in a live venue than they had built up in social media and I think that's that's playing out and I think it's real difficult to, you know, I, I know a lot of people who had three times a week, they had 15 minutes on social media of chat and concerts and playing, and they were a lot of fun. And now, you know, venues are looking at that instead of 100 people coming to their concert, there were 18. Right. So, so... Um, you know, I think this is the next flux going on right now. And it's, it, I know it happened at the Blackstone River Theater. I know it happened at Cassines. Um, and it happened even at Carnegie Hall. And I, I think that's, you know, as people did not want to be forgotten, and they use social media to, to really get their art out there, but does that exposure have that special thing that happens at a concert? It, did it hurt? Maybe for the short time, but I, but I think it's bouncing back. I'm a, a lot more hopeful than I was, let's say, a year ago. Yeah, I think it, it, it's definitely on the upswing. Uh, I mean, it's not only just the major venues. We lost a lot of those routing venues because those are the oh, ones yeah. that could not, that did not survive the pandemic. So, you know, now routing tours are is a little more difficult because, all right, you may be able to get a couple of those anchor gigs, festivals, whatever. They're starting to come back. But it was those... Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday gigs that right. that pay for the gas, that that fed the band, that you know, play paid for hotels for being out on the road. Because a lot of people don't realize that when you go out on the road, you're not just out on the road on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You're out on the road, and you got to eat, you got to sleep, you got to you know all those off days. And those, you know, you need to fill in as many of those as you can to make a tour profitable. Uh, So, you know, that's the big uh, economic problem I think a lot of musicians are are facing 
when they when they look to go back on the road and tour again is they're they're missing um i would say at least 80 percent of their routing venues that they used to you know depend on you know oh yeah and and they that would also mean that they have to adjust who where they'll accept to play so you know there were um and I think what this leads to, rather than the making money, is that there's going to have to be a new spirit of how venues and artists work together. You know, I, th- I think that is what's going to come out, because you're right. 70% of uh, venues closed and are not reopening. Those are the hard numbers. House concerts have come up. Um, other things, you know, filling in the void. And each one of those little routing venues has to start building its own audience of who's going to come and how do they make themselves accessible to that local community. It, social media helps that if I'm playing in, let's say, Lexington, Kentucky, well, you know, yes, I have, you know, a couple of hundred of Facebook friends there. Um, so I can get the word out that I will be there. But is the place that I'm performing, will that be handle them, make them feel welcome and invited so that not only don't they come when I play there, but when the next person comes there. So it's a it's a real change that's that is going on. Um, but I think there's a big force that people want to see live music again and not just at the at the monster venues, right? You know, well, that's that's uh, what, that's what we're hoping that uh, we we start getting some rebuilding our touring networks, um, and and you know, and getting things back. Um, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's uh, a real pleasure to have spoken with you today, and uh, we're going to give everyone out there a double shot from your new release. You guys are going to love this. You know what? Turn up loud. <laughs> The hell with the neighbors. We're going to have some fun tonight. <laughs> Thank you so much. And invite me back anytime. This All right. Fun. Come back, my darling, come 
smell the salt water my mother would cheer
Whether you're an independent artist or a fan that loves them, makingascene.org is the place for you. For the music fan, we bring you in-depth interviews and CD reviews from artists who are on the cutting edge of original music. For the independent artist, we bring you articles on music business, recording techniques, gear reviews, and interviews with industry professionals that give you real-world information to help you negotiate the new realities in the music industry and give you the tools you need to move your career to the next level. We bring you new content every day. Makingascene.org is the number one resource for the independent artists and the fans that love them. Head on over and become part of the Indie Revolution. Shout now, honey. Gonna make. 